You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at courses.aynrand.org forward slash webinars forward slash register. Should I Follow My Head or My Heart? By Aaron Smith. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth. We're coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute in California. Uh, this is a weekly webinar series exploring life's big questions uh, and the answers to those questions from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm Aaron Smith. I'm your host this week. And our question for the day is, should I follow my head or my heart? So the format today is going to be, I'll give something like a 15 to 20 minute presentation, and then we're going to open it up for questions and discussion. Uh, my colleague Keith Lockich is going to be moderating the Q&A and also uh, joining in uh, in questions and discussion period. So should I follow my head or my heart? In other words, should I follow my thinking or my feelings? Or if you want to put it in somewhat more philosophical language, it's the question, should I follow reason or emotion? So why is this issue important? Well, one thing you can say is that emotions are an ever-present feature of our lives. They tug on us, they excite, they urge, they sometimes deflate us. In other words, they have motivational effect um, and often a strong one. So it's important to know what's generating them uh, so we can know how to respond to them. What I want to do today is share briefly uh, a perspective on emotions that I've found really helpful uh, and that I know many others have as well. And that's a perspective I learned, at least, well, at least I learned it from Ayn Rand. In particular, I want to share three major points uh, that I find clarifying in thinking about emotions and their relationship to thinking. Uh, and we'll discuss these in the webinar and also elaborate in the Q&A. The first point is that emotions are related to our thinking. Emotions have cognitive roots. They stem ultimately uh, from our estimate of certain facts and their value significance to us. That's point one, emotions have cognitive roots. The second point is that you can understand and bring harmony to your emotional life. Because if you can understand or make it a policy to discover the judgments that generate your emotional responses, you can come to understand why you feel as you do and work to resolve such conflicts as may arise between your, your thinking and your feelings. And the third point um, is that there is no necessary conflict between head and heart, no necessary conflict between head and heart, between reason and emotion. Inner conflicts do happen, um, but they're not, in, in Rand's view, they're not inherent to human nature. Um, we're not born divided with two parts at war with each other. Um, her view, as I understand it, is that emotional or inner conflict in this sense comes from differing and sometimes contradictory assessments uh, and evaluations that a person holds that can come in conflict and generate different uh, kinds of emotions that can clash with each other. So emotions have cognitive roots. If you understand them, you can come to understand your emotions and bring harmony to your emotional life, and you're not necessarily have to live with a kind of an inner war, inner conflict. Now, I should say that I'm addressing this uh, question from the perspective of philosophy, not psychology. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, the data I'm drawing on here is uh, available to anyone by introspection. It's primarily introspective data, in other words, reflecting on what you can observe in yourself uh, when you experience your emotions. So I'm not addressing here things like mental disorders or psychological trauma or things like that. That's outside my field. It's more philosophy or it's more psychology than philosophy. So what is an emotion? If you just look at the things that are up on the slide, you've got anger, love, fear, sadness, joy, and so on. These are things that we feel, things we experience consciously. So emotions are things we experience in consciousness. But you can't directly will yourself to, to have emotions. You can't will yourself to feel rage or anger or jealousy or joy. Uh, these kinds of things arise automatically, like a pop-up ad. 
the question is what generates these pop-ups? Uh, and that's really what we're trying to get at here. So let's consider an example. Suppose you get a promotion at work. What's your assessment of the situation? Well, the promotion is a recognition for your accomplishments. Let's say it's more pay, perhaps more visibility within the organization. What's your estimate of the value significance of these facts to you? Well, is it for you or against you? Does it promote your goals or hinder them? Is it desirable or undesirable? Well, in this situation, well, you can look at the image there. Uh, she clearly regard the woman here clearly regards it uh, as a good thing. It's promoting her goals or her happiness. So understandably, she is elated. But what if her assessment of the situation were different? Suppose the promotion required moving across the country and significantly more travel and time away from home, neither of which she wants or looks forward to. Her emotional response would be less positive, more hesitant, mixed, even conflicted perhaps. Some of why? Because some of her values are being achieved and others are being threatened or frustrated. What generates emotional responses? Well, as I understand it, Rand's view is that emotions result from two primary factors. On the one hand, you perceive or imagine some object or fact, such as the promotion at work, and you have some kind of estimate of the value significance of that object or fact to you. In other words, whether you think it's good for you or bad for you or something of a mixed blessing. So an emotion is an automatic response to an object in light of your assessment of its value significance to you. But notice that both your assessment of a situation and your estimate of its value significance to you can be mistaken. So you can't simply rely on uh, an emotion as getting it right, so to speak. Consider the following case. You're on your way to work and someone is driving extremely slowly in front of you. You flash your lights, no response. What's your assessment of the situation? Perhaps that the driver's being inconsiderate and you, might be, and you might be late to a meeting. What's your estimate of the value significance of these facts to you? Well, you're being wronged in some way. You're being ignored and you're getting angry. Why doesn't this jerk just pull over? But suppose you managed to pass the driver and you noticed that the driver was injured, even bleeding. Your emotions would change quickly, perhaps to concern or sympathy or worry. Why? Well, your assessment of the facts have changed. This wasn't some inconsiderate driver blowing you off. Um, it was somebody who's hurt. And your value assessment changes as well. In light of the situation, perhaps the meeting is not all that important and maybe you should call 911 or something. The point is this, that your, your emotions let you experience your perceived value situation, but the, but the judgments with, which give rise to them are not necessarily accurate or rational or in line with the facts. So the question of whether one should follow an emotion uh, depends on whether one should follow the estimates on which the emotions are based. And those estimates can be correct are these, so there are, are those estimates correct or incorrect? Um, and that's not always clear and that takes investigation. It's not always clear, I should say, that uh, what are the assessments in, uh, that are underlying a particular emotion? That takes introspection. Um, so as Ayn Rand put it in Philosophical Detection, she, she says, an emotion as such tells you nothing about reality beyond the fact that something makes you feel something. Without a ruthlessly honest commitment to introspection, to the conceptual identification of your inner states, you will not discover what you feel, what arouses the feeling, and whether your feeling is an appropriate response to the facts of reality, or a mistaken response, or a vicious illusion produced by years of self-deception. And this is a really important point because the aim is to get to the point where your emotions, uh, the emotions you experience are based on estimates that are true, that are valid, that are in line with the facts and one's rational goals so that you experience harmony 
not clash. So if you ask, should I follow my head or my heart? The question is, how harmonized are your emotions with your thinking, with rational thinking, with good thinking? How accurate and rational is the thinking on which your emotions are based? If the question boils down to a conflict between, well, let me step back, back a moment. When people talk about following your heart, because you'll often get that kind of advice from people, follow your heart. It's not typically, I think, what they mean is, um, if you have an emotion, just go for it, go after it, follow its lead, close your eyes, so to speak. It's usually more something like, um, follow your passion, and, or, or rather put it in a better way, don't ignore what you feel strongly about. Don't ignore your passions. Don't ignore what you uh, strongly care about. And I think that's right, that you shouldn't ignore those things. Um, but the issue is, do you understand where they're coming from? Um, you may have a passion for something, um, but maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> Depends on what's guiding that passion, what's generating it, and whether you even understand what you're doing. So if the question boils down, I think, to a, um, to a conflict between your clearest thinking, your reason, your head, so to speak, and an emotion that you can't really explain or reconcile with your thinking, then follow your head, your reason. I mean, reason, after all, is your means of figuring out the facts, grasping causal connections, understanding means to an end, and so on. Uh, and emotions that clash with your thinking are like blind pop-ups, you know, that you can't understand or justify. Um, so on the one hand, if that's the way you think about the question, is it head versus heart? Or reason and thinking versus emotions, which you don't quite understand and can't get underneath, then the answer is follow your head. Um, but there's a sense in which um, the head versus heart there's something in which it's not really head versus heart. It's because emotions um, are generated by certain kind of value premises, um, basically estimates of values that you've accepted and automatized, or, you know, they're part of your equipment now, and your assessment of certain kinds of facts, that's what generates them. There's a sense in which head versus heart is really an issue of explicit known thought out premises and other premises that are there generating the emotions but which you're not necessarily that attuned to or aware of so in 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 one sense it's really boils down to follow one set of assessments or premises versus another set um and part of the importance of this is and this was related to my one of my takeaway points about uh that that we're not metaphysically divided with two opposing forces clashing. You've got, you're split in half and you've got the thinking side and you've got the feeling side and they're inherently opposed and at war, at odds. Um, it's not that you have two independent, distinct sources of guidance, uh, like you're listening to teacher A and teacher B. It's really that um, you you program your mind by the kind of conscious thinking and knowledge gathering and introspection and conclusions that you draw. And those, however well you do that or how badly, uh, will determine the kind of emotions uh, that you have, the kind of pop-ups that you have. I use that metaphor. Um, so there is this issue of, on the one hand, it's you've got head and heart on the other, I mean, that's a metaphor, um, but it's really thinking versus feeling. Um, but ultimately, I think it boils down to one set of premises or evaluations, however well or badly thought out, versus another. Um, so there's a sense in which there's the head versus heart is really premise, one set of premises versus another. So you need to figure out what's what. Um, so this is just a brief indication um, of the of um, Rand's take on emotions and their cognitive roots uh, and some thoughts about uh, how to achieve integration between your thinking uh, and your feeling and how to, and 
with some kind of practical guidance in a way of if you experience, um, uh, let me go back to the previous one. If you experience a clash between the two, uh, the action item for you then is to start really introspecting and trying to figure out why you feel what you feel. I mean, that's what introspection is about. Why do you feel what you feel? Or what do you feel? And then why do you feel what you feel? So it's, um, and if you don't think, so if you didn't think emotions had cognitive roots, you wouldn't think that that's the route to take. You might just take them for granted. Like that's the way I feel, it's the way I am. They just, what are you gonna do, right? You have these two things. Um, so understanding the, the, the cognitive roots of emotion helps you know how to think about them, how to understand them, um, and how to bring harmony if what you've got is disharmony. Um, so this, uh, as I said, this is just a brief introduction to these issues and we'll talk more about them, but let me point to some resources for further study. Um, well, study sounds really serious, but you can look into it. Um, I think the first place I would start if you wanted to know something more about Rand's view on emotions is with uh, the Ayn Rand lexicon. Um, this is a book put together by uh, Dr. Harry Binswanger, uh, but you can find this on uh, the Ayn Rand Institute's website. Uh, the content of the book is available there. Uh, and there's a section in there on emotions. It's a kind of an A to Z, almost like a dictionary. Um, and there's a section there on emotions, which gathers key passages from Rand's works uh, where she discusses uh, this. And you could follow up too on, the, um, uh, on the, the articles and books from which these passages are taken. Um, another one is Philosophy Who Needs It. So Philosophy Who Needs It is a, is a collection of Ayn Rand's articles, but the first, is that true? Yeah, the first essay in the book is called Philosophy Who Needs It. Uh, and there's a lot of good stuff uh, in there about particularly about the nature of emotions and the relation of reason to emotions, uh, how you program your emotions. Um, so that's an excellent article. Um, the other one I would say is the objectivist ethics. So this is the first uh, essay in her book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Um, and there she lays out the basic framework of her moral philosophy, but in doing so, she talks about she talks a lot about reason and emotion. But, they play an important role. Uh, and if you're looking for a more, uh, I don't know, deep dive analysis of emotions, the nature of emotions, different kinds of emotions, like a whole range of emotions and what's what kinds of things are underlying them and generating, there's a really good course uh, that's on ARI's website on what we call ARI Campus, also available on the Ayn Rand University app. Uh, and it's called Emotions by Dr. Harry Binswanger. It's a two-part uh, course. Um, I don't remember exactly how long that is. It must be like maybe three hours total in the, the, like a two-part. Um, but that's an excellent course also with Q&A, um, which goes into much more detail than I can do here. But um, So that, that's it for resources. Um, I want to remind everyone uh, of next week's webinar, before we turn to the Q&A, that is. Uh, I want to remind everyone of next week's webinar on August 24th. Uh, that's going to be with Keith Lockage, uh, and he's going to be addressing the question, is selfishness the root of all evil? So uh, you see the, um, the URL there, courses.einrand.org slash webinars. Um, that's where you can register for that uh, particular webinar or for the whole series. Um, so before we turn to the Q&A, I want to ask you all a question. Um, part of the goal of the webinar series is to uh, offer some introductory content to people who've maybe not really heard of Ayn Rand or know very little about her or her ideas. Uh, and so we want to try to figure out uh, to what extent we're reaching that audience. So let me put up a survey question here and I, if I, I'd like you to all answer it. It's very quick. Uh, let me just click on the poll here. Um, go. It's really about what's your familiarity uh, with Ayn Rand or her ideas. So we're just gonna watch this for a second. And my guess is we got, we're gonna get a lot of people who have uh, heard quite a bit uh, or read quite a bit of Ayn Rand's work. But let's see who else we have. And while that poll is populating, 
uh, let me say this. Uh, do you have a, a big question for a future webinar? So again, we put this as it's about life's big questions, you know, the, the kind of deeper ones, the fundamental ones, um, the things that people in general in life have to struggle with rather than a, like a particular technical subject. But so we are interested in hearing what you have to say and what kinds of things you'd like us to talk about. It helps us plan future webinars and episodes. Uh, you can send those in to webinars at einrand.org and we will consider them and uh, figure out uh, which ones we want to address. Okay, so I think the poll is done. Let's take a look here. Okay, so let me click end poll. Or maybe I can just leave the poll open. I'm just going to minimize that. Um, so we are going to go ahead and start with questions because I imagine some of them have already started to come in. I'll say one thing about the questions. Um, uh, at the at, on your Zoom screen uh, toward the bottom, there'll be a Q and A module, just a Q and A toward the bottom, and that you can click on that and submit questions there. So let me uh, bring in my colleague Keith Lockett. She is somewhere out there in the. Uh, Stratosphere. Hi, Aaron. How are you? Hey, Keith. Good. Should we? Uh, why don't we end the poll? Yeah. Um, you can. Do you want to go ahead and do that? that? Uh, yeah. Let me end the poll. And uh, I was going to ask: Do you want to go back to your takeaways slide, just so people can uh, we can just look over those one one more time? Sure. So let yeah, me. Just click back through these. Let's see here. So we have a few questions. <clears throat> um, there we go. Yeah. Why don't you just walk us through those three once again, just kind of summarize the presentation. And we've already got a few questions that have come in. Um, sure. I'm just going to stop. Well, keep them. No, you can keep them up right now. Okay, sure. Okay. While we look um, at them. <clears throat> yeah, so one, the issue of emotions having cognitive roots. Um, the point here is, I mean, by cognitive, I think related to your thinking. Um, and I raise this because in it, it's been common, or if you take some historical views about the nature of emotions, they seem to um, because of the fact that emotions are experienced automatically, like, like I've been putting it like a pop-up, they just show up and you, you experience something, that sometimes they're felt as uh, they're independent of your thinking, that they just come up. And sometimes when you experience, uh, like let's say you're torn between what you think you ought to do or ought not to do, and what you really want or what you have a real desire to do. You can feel torn, conflicted, and it feels like your feelings are pulling in one way, away from thinking. Um, and uh, to get the idea that emotions have cognitive roots, it's, it's not that there are these two forces um, or sources of guidance, if you want to put it that way. Um, it's that really you what you just have is whatever thinking you've done, well or badly, that's been integrated uh, into your mind and it's now it's part of your sort of mental context. Uh, and there's a lot that's there and they don't, and sometimes they'll conflict. But if you think of emotions as separate sources of guidance rather than based on ideas or based on premises, based on values, um, you won't really know how to deal with them. And so sometimes the idea is, well, if the emotions get in the way of your thinking, shut them down, suppress them, ignore them. And that's not, I think, the right way to go um, because they're actually coming from things that you've accepted on one way or another. So it gives you, so understanding that emotions have cognitive roots gives you a window on understanding them, what generates them, and also uh, on how to correct them because you might think maybe this is not the appropriate emotional response. And do you just go, oh, well, that's what it is. Or can you look at it as like, well, why is it that I'm having these kinds of responses? What's underlying that? And it gives you a, it says, you know, introspect, look into it. And that can be complicated. So when we go to point two, um, that you can understand and bring harmony to your emotional life, this is really is the point that you can use point one uh, to have a better understanding of your emotions. 
and if there are conflicts to bring to learn how to bring harmony to that uh, to get your thinking in line your best thinking in line with the feelings that you have um, and the third point um, is that although people experience sometimes uh, conflicts between their thinking uh, and their feelings or reason and emotion uh, that conflict is not necessary it's not metaphysical in other words it's not just an inherent built in you got to live with it adjust to it that's the way you are aspect of, of human nature it's really something coming more from a conflict between certain value premises or certain evaluations that you've accepted and you know you're not always aware explicitly of what they are and so that kind of inner conflict can generate emotions you know going on different directions and it you know it feels like you're somehow you're inner you're at war with yourself um and and people have often framed or tried to think about that issue as well you've got it's a war between a and b and there are two forces battling each other and i don't think that's really the right way to think about that um and also i would say that i don't really think that a clash between reason and emotion or head and heart is really the norm i think well it maybe depends who you are i think to the to the, to the extent that you you think carefully about your values and about uh, what you think is true and you're on the, you know on the premise in life that this is what you should do you should think hard about what's true and what's right and what's good and why you feel what you feel and you're introspective and you're and you know um I don't think your emotions come to you in any with, in, with too much surprise. I think you can basically understand them. I think there are emotions that are definitely complicated, and there's no there's no way to there's no sense minimizing that some emotions are very complex because a lot goes into what um, into feeling them and generating them that that can be complex. Complex. Yeah, Aaron. Actually, that uh, we we got a question from an anonymous attendee asking why. Why can it be so difficult sometimes to determine the cause of a certain emotion? Do you want to, why don't we, why don't we put the takeaway slide, why don't we put the slides away and we'll go into Q&A mode here and do you want to take up that question? Why can't, why is it so hard sometimes to figure out what our emotions are? Uh, yes, I just, I just stopped sharing here, right? Yeah. Let's see here. Aaron, Aaron is our most tech-savvy uh, speaker for ARI here. He can't figure out what that is. <laughs> okay. Um, actually, the, oh, there it is. Got it. Okay. And I, can you just check if you're in gallery view? I am in oh. gallery view. Okay. Okay, so let me pull up this little Q&A module here. Yeah, why don't you, uh, so, the, so the question is, why can't it be so difficult sometimes to to figure out what the causes cause of a particular emotion is um because over time well i'll give you one answer uh is that you have quite a complex context of knowledge that you bring to bear on any given situation so i gave the point about um uh, the the person getting a promotion and I said, well, under normal circumstances, you know, maybe you get some more pay, you get some more visibility, whatever it is, this is a good thing, life is going well. Um, and, then, and then I said, well, on the other hand, what if this involves a lot of travel, a cross-country move? Now think about the complexities that could go into this. Um, her husband doesn't want to move. He's adamant against it. She's going to spend a lot more time away from her family. And, you know, maybe let's imagine she cares a lot about her kids. <laughs> and uh, this is a really important thing uh, for her to do. On the other hand, she's felt for some years that her career's not really going anywhere, that she's not getting the recognition that she needs. And this promotion was a real kind of shot in the arm. It really, this was like, it, this was felt really good. Um, on the other hand, she doesn't know how long this career is going to last, you know, and so you can, you can, you can keep building in layers of complexity, but the issue is it's, um, so on the one hand, there can be many different values at stake, which you have to prioritize and think about what's interesting. What about time with family? What about the husband? Is he not going to move with her at all? Does she, can she work remotely? Is it just, is this going to be a major issue with the, the marriage? Um, how important is that to her versus her career? What about the kids? Can't the kids, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a lot to sort out. And so you can often feel very conflicted in it. And in the end, 
it's um, you bring a complex um, context of knowledge about the situation and also you have different values are at stake uh, and it's kind of it's often hard to prioritize um, or to think about how to manage your feelings when it comes to do you feel guilty because you're not going to spend time with your kids uh, are you afraid of the conflict with your husband if this is just going to be a big argument have you been arguing a lot lately and this could tip it over the edge i mean so there are a lot of things that sort of play into that and it's it's it, it yeah. really takes time yeah. yeah okay so we have a we have a couple questions from david yes he, he asked a question about subconscious nudges and how to understand that and he's got a question about following your gut we're actually going to try something new today which is uh david is on zoom live and I'm actually going to open up his camera and allow him to ask the question. He's going to—he's just going to ask it briefly, and then we'll—and then we'll—we'll um, uh, see how that goes. So we're going to get a live question from one of our Zoom attendees today. So nice. David, I—I I just first time ever. Talk. So there, can we? And now you can unmute your microphone. Can you? Can we uh, unmute you oh. if we get some weird echo. Yeah. Can we hear you? Can you hear me? Hi, David. Yeah, we can hear you. So go ahead and ask your question, and then we'll mute you again. Um, so I found before I started to uh, introspect and integrate that often sometimes following my heart or my gut, as I would call it, seemed to be more rational because my mind was so confused from the society I was in. So I'm wondering if that's a proper assessment and how we handle people like that who actually their emotions seem to potentially be more rational because their mind is confused. Okay, good question. Um, I think what's going on there, in, particularly in the example you give, both of yourself and of people who they go on their gut and they're pretty, they are, they're often right. Um, I think what's going on there is um, the person has, I mean, this could, this depends on the situation, but the person has a healthier um, set of integrations and judgments um, often than their conscious conclusions. Um, if you take someone like, uh, I don't know if you've read Atlas Shrugged, but if you take somebody like uh, Hank Reardon, um, he is, and I'll get away from that example if you haven't read it, but it's here, here's somebody who, he takes a very rational, independent um, way of approaching his life and his work and his career, um, and he, he doesn't think quite as clearly or have a clearer view about his family relationships and so on. So it's, I can actually, let me move away from that because that's, I, I know we're not supposed to assume knowledge. Um, you could have, you, I, I think the issue like in your own case is when you feel like you're going on your gut, what you're actually, there, there is no real gut, of course, it's a metaphor, but it's what you're going on are a lot of uh, subcon, a lot of integrations that you've already made in life, and if it's pretty healthy in terms of the way you've programmed your own subconscious or the way you've programmed your own uh, value premises and uh, and so on, um, acting quickly on what you've already integrated, if you've integrated it well, can be often accurate. Um, it's when, like, when you take a. Um, uh, uh, a, a businessman he's been a successful businessman for like 30 years and when he goes on his gut that again gut is not the right way to put it he's going on a, a whole background of context of knowledge and integrations that he's maybe very well put together so that he can act very quickly uh and it feels like yeah i'm just going on my gut uh, like he doesn't need to consciously think it out in point one, point two, uh, because he's already done a lot of integrations that allow him to function successfully. But it wouldn't, but it's, and sometimes those, all those integrations and the guidance that he's kind of getting as pop-ups from that um, are better than some of the conscious conclusions that he may have accepted about, you know, management theory and, you know, uh, but his own experience has led him to integrate his knowledge in a ways that gives him often a better guide. But again, what it is, is you've pro uh, the person's consciously programmed their mind pretty well, and they're acting on those kinds of premises. Um, I would put it like that without knowing the specifics. Yeah. Uh, David, quick follow-up, or is that good for now? You can, uh, I'll unmute you and you can. Uh... No, that's good. Uh, thank you. And actually, Hank Reardon is 
very much resonated with me because I see a sort of similar conflict within him. Okay. Yeah, because he's accepted views about morality that deep down he doesn't accept them. He doesn't really, they're not fully integrated into his way of living. So they sort of live separately in a way, but he's kind of accepted them. So they, he doesn't, he has this conflict, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, David. I'm going to disable your microphone now. So, uh, Aaron, we got a question over Facebook. And it's uh, I can't, I'm not, I don't I don't want to mess up the person's name, so I won't try to read the name. But why? But the question is, why do human beings love getting an adrenaline shot from emotion? Like, why are they so important in our lives? Um, I don't know exactly what you mean by the adrenaline shot, but one of the things Ayn Rand said is that emotions are the form in which you experience the joy of existence. I mean, life without emotions would be pointless. I mean, literally pointless. It would not be worth living. How do you experience that life is worth living, damn it? How do you experience that? By cerebrally cogitating about things that, have, that don't matter to you <laughs> in the, I mean, emotionally? No, I mean, it's you experience- I mean, That's what I do, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but the issue is, um, uh, I mean, we think about uh, happiness, joy, excitement, elation, anticipation. You know, you think Christmas, right? Is this is how you experience life is worth living? Um, and if if the question is why do we need that, it's like, well, you need that to know that life is worth living, to really experience that. And if you don't, there, the question is, what's the point of putting food in your mouth? What's the there's where's the payoff? And it's funny because sometimes a uh, um, people can read Ayn Rand in a way in which they think, uh, well, following reason means becoming like, you know, Spock on Star Trek and, you know, become emotionless and, and, uh, and just because the, the heavy emphasis on reason, but she also emphasizes that, you know, it's the, it's the experience of the love of life, the joy of life that makes it all worthwhile or it makes it all matter. Um, so if it, I hope that helps, uh, yeah. Okay, so we have an interesting question from Juan. If I keep following my head, would I will I eventually become less emotional? And is that bad? In other words, if you is it do you do you end up suppressing your emotions by not by if you if you do the follow your head uh, approach? What do you think of that? Um, no, not necessarily. If what you mean by following your head involves. Um, Shutting, trying to shut down your emotions, trying to ignore them, suppress them, get rid of them, uh, get them out of your life. Uh, yeah, that's a really bad thing um, because they are important indicators. Of, she called Ayn Rand called it a barometer in a way. They're important indicators of what your uh, what your views and premises are, and you have to figure those out because it's um, anyway. I don't mean you have to like it's some kind of duty. It's they point to conflicts in your own thinking on the so on the one hand they point to conflicts in your own things that you've accepted uh over time um but there's a difference between so no so following your head means understanding your emotions not getting rid of them now there could but if you if you come to understand that the reason why you're having some emotional response is based on bad thinking a faulty exam uh, a faulty um premise um, then you need to work to correct the premises, not shut down the emotion. You can work to correct the premises and then fix the emotion, but that doesn't turn on a dime either. Um, so, um, but, but the one thing I do want to say is, um, if you mean becoming less emotional and you mean by that becoming less emotionalistic, then yeah, I mean, an emotionalist, the one who uh, follows his emotions, if I feel it, I go for it, you know, and to the extent that one is an emotionalist, yeah, following your reasoning, being being careful about that will lead you away from that. But that's a good thing. All right. Um, we have a question from Emmett. So the wording is, is, what is the expected outcome of correcting your thinking when you go through the exercise of trying to figure out what's causing a conflict between your conscious thoughts and your emotions? So the way I, the way I understand the question is, so what happens? So you you go through this process of trying to understand the thinking behind beneath your emotions 
and then you and if, and you think about it, maybe you recognize that you, there, you had a, a cognitive error, you were mistaken about something, and you correct your thinking. So then, what what happens then? You know, what's the what follows well, from well, that? Yeah. Well, the goal is to have a kind of seamless harmony between your your thinking and your emotions, so that you're not your emotions aren't um, uh, what's the word um, dark to you. You're not confused by your emotions. You're not, you don't experience regularly or maybe at all, I mean, uh, uh, inner conflict in the sense, in, uh, by inner conflict, I mean, between, you know, your feelings and your thinking. Um, that, I mean, you take, uh, well, again, examples from Ayn Rand's novels, but you take Howard Rourke. He doesn't live with inner conflict. He knows why he feels what he feels. And so he's it, also, he doesn't feel that his emotions are a kind of a threat to him because they follow seamlessly from his, his, uh, his thinking, uh, which he's confident about. And it's, um, so the idea isn't that there's kind of an objectivist duty to go sit at home for two hours every morning and, and introspect or something. It's just that, um, particularly when you have, uh, when you, when you're at, when you have a, when you don't understand an emotion or you don't quite get it, or you have some sneaking suspicion that maybe that's not an appropriate response here, uh, then that should be a cue for you to, um, to think about what's generating that. Because you also don't want a bunch of misintegrated programming guiding or mucking up your thinking. Uh, and the clearer you can get that and get the bugs out of the program, so to speak, um, the clearer you'll uh, operate. Like I had a student once in university, um, he was a, a Muslim and he was taking a, a course with me and I wasn't teaching atheism, but we were, we were discussing the issue of God. And he started, he talked to me after class and he says, uh, you know, this is really scary to me because I'm really intellectually, I'm convinced that atheism is, is actually right. But this is actually kind of terrifying. Like I stay awake at night. I mean, my whole upbringing has been, you know, it's going to be hell and damnation and all this it, it's been it's been driven into him since he was a kid and so he keeps getting these emotional pop-ups even though he thinks it's false he keeps having the emotions like that so what you don't want is you don't want to have that kind of programming where you've got conscious conclusions at war with old data that are still in the system generating emotional responses that you can't really control and it's to get harmony there yeah all right um another interesting question here what are, so the what about the issue of self-deception? So can you how do you detect self-deception and and are there emotional cues that can kind of uh, help with that? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that um, I don't think I guess I haven't thought a lot about self-deception. Um, I don't think self-deception is something that happens to you. Uh, I think in some sense, however clearly or dimly, it's something that one can detect or feel, particularly at the time, that, yeah, you're just kind of rationalizing about something. You're just kind of coming up with a slightly phony sounding explanation for why you're doing what you're doing or why you feel what you feel. Um, so one is in the moment, I think it should feel to you a little like not genuine in the moment. Um, the other thing is that over time, if you're serious about figuring out what's true and understanding yourself, it's going to come up again. Like it'll come up, you know what, I always told myself this, but I'm not so sure that was that was right because the more you try to integrate uh, where you are now from where you are in the past or integrate your thoughts, the more the issue of the conflict is going to come up between what you told yourself uh, were your reasons um, from what are your actual reasons. So it'll come up again if you're trying to think and in, in, in integrate. Um, but I guess that's all I have to say about that. Okay, we have a question. Uh, I think this is a little more on the side of psychology than on philosophy, but I thought I, I would put this question through and then you can maybe say a little bit about where the, about the border between those two fields. So this person's asking, why is it that some people have uh, things like depression and anxiety? 
and I know that's prim more primarily a psychological question, but do you want to say a little bit about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on the issue of irrational emotions, uh, I don't think there are irrational emotions. If you just take that, that, that phrase as such, irrational emotions. Emotions are taken by themselves, just taken by themselves, they're simply automatic responses. I think they're neither rational nor irrational. If you just take them by themselves, these automatic, there it is. Um, and I don't think one should feel guilty or about the emotions that one has, just thinking about them by themselves. There is a sense in which you can think about emotions being irrational. And that's the sense in which an emotion is coming from irrational premises. In other words, uh, thinking that's out of line with the facts, thinking that's um, mistaken. And so you can have emotions, uh, you can experience things that you shouldn't be, you ought not to be feeling. Um, uh, just take, for example, resentment at someone's success. Suppose you have a colleague who's doing really well. Uh, they're really productive, they're really smart, uh, they're really showing their value at the organization. And, um, uh, and they get, I don't know, they get a promotion or they get a raise or you know, whatever it is, they get some sort of acknowledgement of that. And if what you feel is, I hate that guy, as a result, of, you should think, that, well, well hold, hold on there. You know, uh, hatred as such isn't irrational. Lots of things you should hate. So, but it's, whoa, like, why do I have that? Okay, so maybe I thought maybe I wanted a raise too, or, but it's like, if what you're experiencing is that. I think that's your that's your coming that's coming from an irrational premise. Uh, you're because your your thinking has become uh, some kind of hatred for somebody's success, earned success, and you got to figure out like why in the world am I having that view? I mean that shouldn't be my view, you know. So in that sense, there can be irrational emotions in that in that sense. Uh, why do people express uh, depression or anxiety? Um, well, I mean. I mean, this is total layman here, but it's when it comes to depression, uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to talk here about physiological sources. I mean, like we actually have some kind of physiological issue that's driving some of these. But if you talk about from a perspective of values and thinking and so on, um, I think it's a feeling to some extent that um, you're not achieving your goals. You're not achieving what you want. You're not going where you want. And to some extent, there's a sense of helplessness, like I can't do it, or I won't be able to do it. And that it has a kind of a deadening effect um, that makes one less likely to want to actively pursue goals and so on. So it's a feeling that, I mean, ultimately it's something like, I think it's something like, I'm not happy because I'm not going where I want to go. I don't know that I can achieve my values. And it, it has a real dampening effect on your own active value pursuit. But again, this is a bit more psychology. And you also said anxiety. Well, anxiety, I mean, there are cases of sort of free-floating anxiety where you just can't pin it and they just come over in a wave and you know, for some reason, uh, and again, that's more psychology. But I think anxiety is something like where you're anticipating disaster or you're anticipating something bad happening. It's... Uh, I know I'm going to fail this test or something like it. It's, it's something in, I think, I think probably in the future. Uh, but why do people experience that? All sorts of reasons. It could be anything from past experience um, where you, like you, you failed the driver's license test three times in a row and you're going back for the fourth times and you have anxiety, you know, partly it's based on, you know, you, you messed up a bunch of times in the past and you anticipate more of the same in the future. In some cases, it's, it's really an irrational expectation of disaster or something when you have no real reason to think that that's what's going to happen. Uh, and so sometimes that's coming from places where I mean, you'd have to dig to find out what's going on there. And sometimes with help. If, again, so if it's really an issue of real serious depression and really unexplained anxiety that just is, is really harmful, I mean, that's something to talk to someone about. And not me. <laughs> Okay, I was trying to see, we had a follow-up. So on the question, the earlier question from Emmett <clears throat> about, about what happens when you correct your thinking 
um, you know, you and you go through that process. Uh, there's a follow-up here. I was trying to see if Emmett wanted to turn on the turn on the microphone and ask it live, but uh, I'm not getting a response. That's okay. So, so then the so then the follow-up question is if you if you do go ahead and do that process of cleaning up the data, as you put it, you know, what happens what happens with the emotional response? What's the outcome there? I, mean, I think you experienced it was it was inappropriate before because of because of incorrect thinking and you correct the thinking what's the process of does it just change on a dime or what okay now you've introduced a new thing <laughs> so let me let me get uh, let me say a couple of things um, one I emphasize the issue of harmony um, and you can look at harmony from two different respects you can look at harmony from the aspect of it's an absence of conflict you're removing inner conflict but you can also look at harmony from the perspective of more of a positive. It's a real integration of your thinking and a real integration of your emotions so that they, they, they work together in a way. Um, and I think one of the things that you can do there, one of the things that results is, I think, and again, I haven't thought a lot about this, but it's, I think you can feel more strongly, um, more intensely, uh, because you're not, you don't have other things chipping away at them or conflicting with them, but you can, your emotions are more unalloyed um, in that regard. Um, yeah, I mean, if you think about joy or happiness from Rourke's perspective versus Reardon's, I mean, Reardon's isn't unalloyed, um, and Rourke's is, and I think largely because he doesn't have these kinds of inter inner conflicts uh, that Reardon does uh, in a way in which it, it's experienced in a seamless way, and I think the emotions can become more intense because less unalloyed, but I would need to think more about that, I think. Okay, so um, we got a question from Andrew, which I'm going to kind of reinterpret a little bit. He's asking about, you know, what are the benefits of um, selfishness in relation to the benefits of being in a complex society? And so, um, maybe I'll just take that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna, yeah go for it. Okay. So, what's the basic premise of Ayn? Well, and I was going to say, how does this relate to the whole issue of emotions? But I think yeah. there's, a, there's a connection there. So, good. Okay. So, maybe you can talk about the latter point. So uh, when it comes to what's the basic premise of Ayn Rand, um, follow reason. It's your tool of knowledge. It's how you understand the world. It's how you choose the kind of values that support and enhance and enrich and sustain your life. It's how you figure out how are you going to deal with other people in a society. Uh, it's how you figure out everything your life requires from, from pencils to, to houses to interplanetary travel. It's so follow reason. Now you, ha now you have to cash that out, but that's in essence the basic premise of Ayn Rand. The benefits of selfishness, you say, in relation to the benefits of a conflict. Well, I don't think those are necessarily in conflict. So the benefits of selfishness is that, um, I mean, selfishness is a rich topic. Um, it's, it's taking your own life seriously and making your own life your ultimate value. Um, and the benefits of that is um, happiness, living well, and thinking for yourself independently, knowing who you are and going after what's important. Uh, so that's the benefits of selfishness. Um, the benefits of living in a complex society and fellowship, well, those are wonderful, but they're not necessarily at odds. Um, so I benefit enormously from living in a complex society. I don't want to live on an island all by myself. I mean, if the complex society is, you know, uh, some sort of a horrific dictatorship or something that maybe that's different, but the benefits of living in complex society, I can trade with others. Like, I don't know how to make this jacket, right? I don't know how to make anything in this room, like literally nothing, <laughs> paper, ink, I don't know, right? So the benefits are you get the enormous boon of other people's achievements, other people's thinking, other people's um, uh, knowledge. And then I can trade my own efforts with them for the things that I'm good at, the things that I can do. So it's, it's magnificent what you can get. And fellowship, I mean, friendship is enormously important. If you think, I, I assume that's what you mean by fellowship. It's like being around other people, 
uh, and so on. That's wonderfully beneficial, but that doesn't mean sacrificing for the community. I think everybody in a complex society or everyone in some sort of fellowship should be pursuing their own interests as well. I mean, one thing to look at is an article by Ayn Rand in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, called, um, uh, what is it? What's the title? It's the, the Conflicts of Interest. Sorry, I forget the exact name. Conflicts of uh, yeah, it's called The Conflicts of Men's Interests. And in that argument, she argues that if people are rational and they expect to trade with each other, there are no conflicts of interest uh, among men that are sort of... Um, but take a look at that, because I think that might have, have a bearing on that. Did you want to say something about the yeah, emotions? And when, it, and, and when it comes to the issue of emotions, I mean, you know, some of our our deepest, most powerful emotional experiences happen as a result of the connections we have with other people, right? And uh, so that's huge. And, that, and those are, and that those are um, if you think about selfishness, you know, those emotional experiences and those connections are a crucial part of what it means to have a life well lived and to pursue happiness and to experience joy in life. So that's, uh, so there's no sort of conflict there it's 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 perfectly integrated yeah no i i agree with that i mean yeah i mean yeah yeah i'll just yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right we're coming down we're coming down to the last couple minutes here and we have a question from emily asking about the concept of a sense of life um now do you want to just say a couple words about what so this is a term that ayn rand identified an issue. Do you want to say a little about what, a, what she means by sense of life? And then you could look at Emily's question if there's, uh, if there's time to kind of go into that level of detail. I don't think there's time to go into that. <laughs> uh, no, because I, I, I'm, I'm punting it a little bit, but partly that's because I think this is a very complex issue. Um, uh, I mean, if you're, if you're asking me about sense of life, you've probably already read some of the things that Ayn Rand has written in her book, The Romantic Manifesto, which is on philosophy of art. And, um, but she has a, a number of articles in there. One's called Philosophy and Sense of Life, and one's called Art and Sense of Life. And both of them deal with this phenomena of what she called a sense of life. Um, uh, I would say, look there. And there's another piece, I know this is harder to get a hold of. Um, it's in, uh, and this is uh, illuminating, I found, uh, was an, a, a book called um, A Companion to Ayn Rand. There's a chapter in there by Ankar Gatte uh, called, I don't exactly remember, something like Man as a Being of Self-Made Soul, something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, that, that's, I think, really helpful on that subject. Uh, but let me re actually read your actual question here. Maybe I can, I, I, Keith has put it on screen for me here. Um, sorry for the little radio silence for the rest of you. Um, yeah, we're at our two-minute warning. Yeah, we're at our two-minute warning. So, sorry, Emily. I mean, again, that's, that's something, well, if I start digging into that, I'm going to ramble. I mean, we have two minutes, so why don't you read it and just see if you have like one sentence today, or, okay. or a reference, maybe. There, uh, some of the articles in the Romantic Manifesto might be uh, a good place to refer, Emily. Sure. Is a, so the question from Emily is, is a person's sense of life an accumulation of emotions that he's automatized? Okay. So, so and continuing. So can identifying a person's sense of life and the conflicts associated with it help bring harmony to that person's emotional life because he is essentially trying to solve the underlying problem as opposed to isolated issues. I, I interpreted it as, I is, there, is there like a wholesale method of, of, of bringing harmony as opposed to retail where you're dealing with specific emotions one at a time? I, I, I don't, I think I that's think not an accurate way of thinking about it. But what I would suggest is to look at some of the, look at some of the articles in, in the book, The Romantic Manifesto, where she talks about the concept of sense of life but go ahead, why don't you say that? Yeah, but it's also, uh, it's very hard to put in conceptual terms what your sense of life is. Ayn Rand was asked this in Q&As and she's like, you're not listening to me. It's not something that you've reached conceptual, it, it's, it's um, you reach them in the form of emotional generalizations. You're, it's held emotionally and you're not, I, I do mean that it's an emotional estimate, a feel, a way in which you've, and it's it's very hard to put those into terms. So I wouldn't go down the track of trying to 
say, what's my sense of life? And to try to identify things and I think that was not quite the right way to do it. But so that's all the time we have for that one. Yeah. Let me see if I can um, share my screen here again for a moment. Um, my sharing? Yeah, I guess I am. Cool. Yep, looks good. So <clears throat> since we're basically out of time, let me skip forward here. And because I want to remind you, oh yeah, there we go. So I want to remind you that uh, next week's webinar with uh, Mr. Keith Lockich here, it's uh, Is Selfishness the Root of All Evil? So you can register for that at courses.einrand.org slash webinars. And um, be sure to send us any big questions that you have for us uh, so that we can consider them uh, at webinars.einrand. Is that what it is? Webinars.einrand.org? So I put it here. Yeah, webinars at einrand.org. So that's it for today. Uh, thanks for joining us. And have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.